We've got to find a way to be innovative, to find new technologies, more efficient means to design and architect these habitats to kind of meet these mass challenges. We want to do that in that lunar environment to, to prep, to, to refine, and then be ready for eventually going to Mars. Welcome to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. As part of the Artemis program planned to send the first woman and first person of color to the surface of the moon, NASA is working with commercial and international partners to establish a permanent human presence on the moon to uncover new scientific discoveries and lay the foundation for private companies to build a lunar economy. An Artemis base camp on the moon's surface and the gateway in lunar orbit are a couple of key elements that will allow robots and astronauts to explore more and conduct science. The agency will use what we learn on the moon to prepare for humanity's next giant leap, sending astronauts to Mars. Today on the podcast, we're looking at considerations for moon-to-Mars habitation. Tiffany Nickens is the systems engineering and integration lead for NASA's habitation formulation team. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Could you give us a brief overview of the habitation systems development team and your role? Sure. So... Habitation Systems Development Team really covers a few different areas, um, including Vehicle System Integration Support, or or VSI, for the Gateway Program. Um, And then we also have a a portion supporting what we call Habitation Formulation. And the Habitation Formulation Team leads the agency's concept development for habitats, including lunar surface habitat uh, and the transit habitat that'll take the first crew to Mars, which is a pretty exciting opportunity there. And we also engage with commercial industry through our um, Next Step Broad Agency Announcements, or Next Step BAA under Appendix A, as well as different Space Act agreements. My support to this is to the Habitation Formulation Team as the Systems Engineering and Integration Lead, or the SENI Lead. What are some ways that living on the moon is different? from living on, say, the International Space Station? Sure. So, you know, the biggest difference is really going to come down to, to gravity. You know, living on the moon, crew will now operate in one-sixth gravity. And so w- there will certainly be very similar challenges um, to operating on ISS, but maybe with a slightly different twist. So you think about operating in one-sixth gravity for things like outfitting your habitat or logistics transfer um, on ISS, we can kind of quickly and, and, and easily push push um, large pieces of material back and forth. But here in this kind of, you know, gravity environment, we'll have to hoist a logistics container up and down multiple floors or um, just kind of physically manipulate things in and out of the habitat that we maybe didn't quite have to go through on ISS. So how do we do that in a a safe, effective way such that we aren't putting crew in 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 a dangerous situation? When we go back to the moon, astronauts will be conducting more robust science on the lunar surface than what NASA did in Apollo. 
how will the surface habitat support that science mission? Sure. So, you know, when we go back to the moon, we're, we're going back in this sustained way, this, this long-term presence on the surface. And so the surface habitat will be able to support a, a broader range of science and utilization capability given the larger volume to house the equipment and for crew to come in and be able to perform those activities. You know, we'll also be able to have the opportunity to run long duration studies over maybe weeks or months or, or, or even years, um, since we'll have that, again, kind of sustained presence for up to 15 years. Of course, we still have work to do to kind of understand what types of exploration science and, and utilization we want to do. But, you know, having that, that surface habitat there will really kind of open the door to the possibilities of, of what sorts of science and, and exploration activities we might want to do that we just were limited um, in, in prior um, Apollo missions. You mentioned that your team is also working on the Mars transit habitat. Would you say it's more like the lunar surface habitat or ISS? And what are some of the similarities and differences? Yeah, so, you know, I think maybe one of the things that is kind of unique about the transit habitat is prior to going out on a, a Mars mission, we'll stay docked at Gateway for the first five or more years of the transit habitat's life. And so we'll, we'll be orbiting with the Gateway in this cislunar orbit to perform things like shakedown missions, to check out our systems, make sure everything is working the way we expected them to. Um, but it'll also serve as a platform to perform Mars analogs um, of, of um, increasing duration. So in those, those early years, um, you know, we'll be able to operate in this microgravity environment, kind of a, a proving grounds where we prepare for Mars and, and future exploration missions. So in that respect, I'd say it, it's probably more like ISS. You know, ISS is this really wonderful <laughs> proving ground of new technology developments, of, of analogs. And so transit habitats is, is kind of, again, kind of in these early years, be very similar in that respect where we um, are able to, to really proof out those new technologies, make sure our con-ops are locked down, that, that we have a good feel for what crew may see, what our systems may operate like prior to, to heading out into to Mars. Um, but, you know, ultimately, they all carry capabilities and technologies and, and knowledge base that, that feed forward to Mars. So, um, so in that respect, you know, maybe they are uh, surface habitat and transit and ISS are, are definitely um, have that common thread with them, too. And so on the way to Mars, Astronauts will be confined to the spacecraft for the entire months-long journey there and back. How will the transit habitat support not only their physical well-being, but their emotional health as well? Yeah, great, great question. You know, and I think sometimes that is lost when we're designing these really complex pieces of hardware and software, these systems of systems, sometimes we lose sight of the most complex system on board, which is the crew. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So we, 
need to ensure that from a physical well-being, we have sufficient exercise capability and food. I mean, that, that's another really key piece is crew will be going out for multiple years. So you think about food fatigue, right? We're, we're, we're going to be somewhat limited on what we can take with them. So um, looking at opportunities to just ensure crew are getting the nutrition that they you know maintain a good healthy appetite um, while they're while they're in transit but as far as their emotional health absolutely I mean it's it really comes down to do they have meaningful work to do things that continue to inspire them to get out of bed right to want to wanna continue on and 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 uh, you know persevere because <laughs> um, you know you you'll they'll be in a, a constrains volume for a long period of time. And those can certainly have some effects to your mental, your emotional health. So being able to offer them ways to, you know, just uh, exercise um, their mind in different ways, like having crew activities, having maybe movie nights, um, having, you know, potentially even um, dedicated holidays, whether they're made up holidays or, or real holidays. Um, those are, you know, they seem like kind of, um, I don't know, maybe silly things, but they, they are important things that they can celebrate and, and look forward to as, as some, you know, little milestone to, to reach. And so um, being able to communicate with home too, that's, that's another important key is, is, you know, enabling them to continue making those connections to family and friends at home. Um, so all of those things together play back into the systems we build, the way we design and architect these habitats. And so, um, so yeah, so keeping those things in mind that it's not just about hardware and software, that there's also this kind of um, crewware, if that's a word, <laughs> these crew <laughs> that we've got to kind of take into consideration as well. So interesting, Tiffany. And, and no one has lived in these places before. How are the assumptions made about what people will need to survive there? You know, we we perform studies, right? We we study, we refine our assumptions, and then we study again. Like that that old saying, you know, measure twice, cut once. You know, it it's not easy. The thing that we're doing, right? Rocket science isn't easy. Space travel isn't easy. We're exploring these new places that we've never been before, technologies we've never used before. So, so study, study, you know, refine our assumptions, um, looking at ways that we can do these analog missions on Earth as much as we can, leverage ISS and and one day maybe even the the new commercial Leo destinations platform, um, and eventually use the moon to be that crossover, right? That place where we can continue growing our knowledge base. I mean, that that's really why we're going back to the moon is, is using it as a um, staging that we can exercise technologies that would be used in the Mars um, environment, the CONOPS, the, um, just the day-to-day motion of what crew may do and perform. We want to do that in that lunar environment to, to prep, to, to refine, and then be ready for eventually going to Mars. And I understand that your team recently developed and released a technical memorandum on ground rules and assumptions for the lunar surface habitat and Mars transit habitat. 
what are some of the highlights and what will the document be used for? Yeah, so, you know, we're pretty excited about this tech memo. You know, for a while, it's, you know, we've wanted to really get out there the, the government's latest thinking on ground rules and assumptions, on functional allocations, and even logistics assumptions for both habitats. And embedded in the document, we've also put in little pieces here and there on um, current concept of operations or current con ops that we know today just to help provide some contextual information to, to better inform industry partners concepts. And so there's lots of great nuggets, uh, you know, but kind of embedded throughout the, the technical memo. Um, I think some of the things the, the community will find are, are, you know, we have pretty major mass constraints, right? As, as probably all, all things do. We, we've got to find a way to be innovative, to find new technologies, more efficient means to design and architect these habitats to kind of meet these mass challenges. Of course, there's, you know, that's one, one of our, our many technical challenges we need to figure out. But, um, but yeah, this, so the, the tech memo is, is really trying to just kind of lay that groundwork and ultimately, that, that's, that's why we developed the document is so we were already engaging with some commercial partners, but we saw this as an opportunity to provide further outreach to potential partners um, interested in habitation or even habitation systems. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we aren't a black box, right? This isn't one big habitat black box. We are made up of um, many, many hundreds of, of components and subsystems that all need to be, to some extent, new technologies need to be designed and developed, um, but integrated and, and brought together to, to build this, this habitat. Um, and so that, that's really what we're hoping to, to do is just get that that latest thinking of where we are out there in the community so they can start refining and, and building their own concepts. What has been the biggest challenge in creating a document like this? The biggest challenge, I think, is finding the right level of detail to go into the document, um, specifically around the ground rules and assumptions. You don't want to overtly constrain or overly constrain um, your assumptions, something that could stifle innovation and, and preclude thinking outside the box. But at the same time, you want to dial it in enough such that the assumptions and bounding conditions really align to some degree with the NASA, you know, the, the government's assumptions. So we're not off building the wrong thing. Um, in the end, you, you really try to find that right balance to get a reasonable baseline. And then you iterate, iterate, iterate. And to, to some degree, that iteration is, is informed by NASA studies. And, um, and then uh, to some degree, it's, it's informed by that engagement with our commercial industry and eliciting um, feedback from our partners. And we're still in the very early phases of the Artemis program. Why is it important to be doing this work now? Well, We'll be reliant on technologies that either don't currently exist um, or maybe are at a low technology readiness level, a low TRL, um, or even some where we're looking to leverage heritage ISS equipment or maybe 
equipment from Orion or SLS, some some prior program that might need you know a slight modification to meet the environmental needs or performance needs that that we require for surface and transit habitats. Um, and so, you know, these technologies are necessary to close the architectures um, to ensure we achieve a successful mission. Um, you know, if you think of like technologies to address dust penetration and operating in extreme environments with shadowed periods lasting days at a time, um, both surface and transit habitat will have those periods where we'll be incomplete darkness and, and need to rely on backup power systems, power storage systems, you know, so um, kind of working through those conops and understanding where we have gaps and technologies and are there technologies that exist to, to meet those gaps? And if not, go through those technology development cycles, which can take time, right, to do the design, the development, the certification of new hardware, those are generally years in the making. So the earlier we can kind of get in and, and understand the playing field, understand what sort of capability needs we require to, again, have a successful mission, the better off we are and, and more likely we'll, we'll be successful uh, in, in the long run. What are the next steps? Continuing to work the unknowns, you know, we, again, we are kind of venturing out into new environments, um, new concept of operations, new ways of, of um, working um, with systems and, and, and crew. So really decomposing those, again, kind of going back to the, the prior question, understanding what sort of capability needs are required um, and, and aligning those to the technologies that are either currently available or need to be developed. Um, looking for opportunities to infuse new technologies as well. Maybe, you know, that thinking outside the box. Um, are there opportunities we can um, reduce mass in some way? Maybe looking at ways to drive down our sparing profile by introducing, I don't know, some new in-space manufacturing capability. Um, so just kind of looking at that bigger picture, refining our architectures, refining our concept of operations. Just so again, we are, you know, study, 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 uh, measuring twice, cut once, and, and can ultimately, you know, be successful in sending crew to the lunar surface and the sustained long-term presence way and then ultimately sending our first crew to Mars. Many thanks to Tiffany for joining us on the podcast. Tiffany's bio and links to topics discussed during our conversation are available at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast along with the show transcript. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future guests or topics on the podcast. If you have a suggestion, please share your idea with us on Twitter at NASA Apple, that's A-P-P-E-L, or contact us via the NASA Apple Knowledge Services website. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.